Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, I want you to start this teaching by imagining. You guys, can, can you imagine something for a moment with me? I want you to imagine for a moment uh, a medieval ancient castle. All right? You can have the whole thing if you want. If you want to have a moat around your castle, you can have a moat. You want a drawbridge, you can have a drawbridge. If you want to have tall, you know, walls with archers up on the top, you can have that. But the one thing I want you to make sure that you have inside this castle in your mind that you're imagining is a throne. And on the throne is the master of the castle, the master of that land, the lord of that domain. And around him, he's got guards and servants, and he sits on his throne as a way to express his dominion, his rule, his sovereignty over that area. Okay, but I also want you to imagine an enemy, a challenger, a potential usurper to the throne, right? He's got an army as well, and he's plotting and planning, trying to devise a means of attack against that castle. What he wants is not just the castle, but he wants to sit on the throne. He wants the dominion. He wants the authority. Right now, I want you to imagine a servant of the master in the castle contriving a way or a means to betray his master and show this enemy a way into the castle so that he can attack and successfully take over that throne. Okay, you got that image in your mind? Can you guys do that little imagining? I could have drawn a picture or something for you, put it on the screen, but I'm making you do all the hard work today. I like doing that. All right, so with that in your mind, I want you to allow that castle to be representative of you and your heart. You see, when you give your life to Christ, when you become a Christian, he is to be the one that's seated on the throne of your life. Jesus is not just our savior, but he is our Lord, amen? He's our master. He's to be the one who has dominion, supremacy, sovereignty, preeminence is a Bible word for what Jesus is supposed to have in our lives. So he is the one who is supposed to be seated upon the throne, but there's an enemy, all right? The devil, the world system, sin, they want to be seated upon the throne of your life. They want to displace Jesus, practically speaking, in your everyday life. They want to be the Lord of your life. So, floating around in you, there's a little usurper, a little betrayer, somebody who leaks information so that sin or the devil or the world system can sit on the throne of your heart. That usurper, It's called the body of sin, our fleshly appetites. And the devil comes against us with a thing called the world system that we're going to look at today, three lines of temptation to try to get into our hearts so that he can have the supremacy that rightfully belongs to Jesus. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 6, verse 12. He said, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This is, a, this is a, a phrase from Paul after talking about how Jesus has won dominion in our hearts and that we have been set free from sin. This is a command from Paul to say, so be active, be vigilant, defend the territory that Christ has won. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. John tells us in this passage that this thing called a love for the world or the things in the world, verse 15, rather than the love of the Father is dangerous and can keep us from our walks with him, can keep us from having Jesus upon the throne. So God today, through this passage, he wants to help guard our hearts. He wants to help protect that throne. So I'm gonna ask three questions of the text today as we just go through it again. Question number one, what is the world that we're not supposed to love? What is the world that we're not supposed to love? We need to think about that for a second. If that's the big thing, hey, don't love the world or the things in the world, we need to ask the question, what is it? What are we not to love? Number two, 
what are the tactics that the world uses to dissuade us from God or to get on the throne? And is there any antidote that we have to defend ourselves against those tactics? And then finally, and we'll just look at this very briefly at the very end of the teaching, what is our motivation for resisting these tactics? Why would I even want to fight against worldliness? Why not just give into it? Why not just give into the flow of this world? It's easier to do that after all, so why not just give in to these temptations? All right, so let's look at that first question. Number one, what is the world? Okay, let's read verse 15 again. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when we read that, some of you might have gotten a real uncomfortable feeling. Like, what is he saying when he says, don't love the world? I mean, when Jesus came along, what did he say? He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. At the end of Jesus' life on earth, he took his 12 disciples and he said, go into all the world, all the nations and teach them the things that I have taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he commissioned them with the evangelization of the world. And when we read the book of Acts, which is the beautiful record of what God did amongst his people in that early era after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, they took the message of Jesus to the world. They loved the world. And so here comes John saying, hey, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. So clearly, it can't mean here in John's passage that we are not to love the people of the world. No, we're to love the people of the world. But it also can't mean that we're not to love the creation, you know, what God made. God made the world. God made the things in the world. And we can enjoy them. Even though creation has been corrupted through sin, it is still a beautiful place that has the fingerprints of God all over it. And we are to enjoy, be faithful to the creation that God has given to us. We eat and drink and pray and play inside of this beautiful world that God has given us. I remember one day I was running up in Jack's Peak, just kind of, you know, out of breath, but the endorphins got going. Man, endorphins are good, man. It's just it's a good feeling. The endorphins were pumping, so I just had this wave of joy that came over me. And, the, and I began thinking about 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, which says, it is God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And there I was in the middle of God's creation, in the middle of this forest, with all the smells and the sights and the scenery. And, and in that moment, I felt like the wealthiest man on earth. God's given me everything. He's given me this cool little trail right now to enjoy. It's mine. Okay, so he's not telling us that we should not love the people of the world or that we shouldn't love the creation that God has made. So what is the world as far as John defines it or, or the way that John is speaking of it here in this passage? Well, here's, the, here's where you'd come to, to know what he's talking about. In John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, we have the record of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he went to the cross. The, the final night together with his disciples. And in that passage, over and over again, Jesus spoke of the world, not as humans and not as his creation, but as a system that is against God. He said things like this, and this is just one of probably a dozen quotations that we could have gone through in, in those chapters in John's gospel. John 15, verse 19, he said to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Like I said, this is just one sample of the way that Jesus used the term world on his final night with the disciples. And John seems to use the term or the word world in the same way. On that night, Jesus meant it's something, a system that is opposed to God. It's prince, Jesus said over and over again. It's leader is the devil himself. 
John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11. And John repeated that idea even in this letter that we're studying here today. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God. He will, he will write in chapter five, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So this helps us understand it's not just the earth's population. I hope you've never used these verses this way, like don't love the people of the world. That's not at all what John is saying but this system that is against the Lord. I define it like this. The world is a system organized in operation against all that is of God. Its way is opposite to and incongruent with the Father's way. You could say it like this. Your Father in heaven has a plan for your life, and so does the world. And they are opposite one another. The world is incompatible, in other words, with the Father. This is the point John is making when he says in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Remember how John started this letter? Just nod your head like, yep, totally do. I remember. What, what he said at the beginning is he said that God is light. God is light. His thinking was that the light of God, when it blasts into a human's soul, mind, heart experience, is that that human then begins to see themselves accurately. They begin to know the truth about who God is and about who they are. But when worldly comes in, in John's vision, he's saying the love of the Father doesn't have access. So worldliness blinds a person. It's like putting scales upon your spiritual sight to where God's light can't do its illuminating work upon your soul. A person that's entrenched in worldliness just can't see. They're blind, they're stumbling awkwardly, trudging along in their worldliness. All right, now I just wanna talk for a second though about that idea of worldliness because Christians of different eras and cultures and times, even today on earth, have defined worldliness in a lot of different ways. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Christians can at times be legalistic. <laughs> and worldliness or the concept has been twisted and pulled in lots of different directions over the years, even to condemn clear areas at times of Christian liberty. You know, over the church's history, there have been times where things like dancing and drum sets and wine have been called demonic or scientific research, or the findings of psychologists, or advancements in architecture have been called worldly, or fashion, or sports, or theater, or literature have been called carnal, you know, not worth a human being's time. There was even a time in the history of the church when the common people could not read Latin. It had fallen out of favor. They could not read Latin, but the scripture was preserved in Latin, and there were people who wanted to, to translate it into the common language, and those people were called worldly by some in the church. Why would you want to make the Bible accessible to human beings? That's carnal. <laughs> so we've been confused about what worldliness is so often in the church. John and Jesus are not talking about common grace creations of humankind or culture or society. They're rebuking something much more severe when they rebuke worldliness. I say this because I don't want Satan to distract you from true worldliness by making you paranoid about imitation worldliness. And if he, if he can get you to feel really godly when you remove your television or feel really godly when you exclusively listen to the Christian contemporary music channel on Spotify. He'll do it. He'll give you those feelings of ultra godliness as long as he can blindingly lead you into real worldliness. So let's think about what real worldliness looks like in verse 16. What does it mean to love the world? How do we fall prey to this anti-Christ system? Let's read verse 16. Again, together. He says, for, for all that is in the world, these are, so here we're going to look here at the world's tactics. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, remember that castle that I talked to you about. Bring it back up into your mind's eye. You want Jesus to be seated on the throne of that castle, right? To, to have control. But here are these three temptations. You know, today's Sunday, the National Football League is doing its thing, and there are pro football teams that have hundreds of plays that they run. Did you know that Satan has three plays that he runs? And he's been running them against humanity for all of time. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He plays them out in a billion ways, but they all condense back to these three temptations. So what I want to do is I want to help define what these temptations even are in the first place, but I also want to give you a suggestion for each one that is an antidote, a way to overcome each one of these temptations. It's, it's, not, it's not just that we want to know what they are, we want to know how to overcome them, amen? So I'm going to hold out some suggestions to you today for each. So let's look at the first. Number one, first, John mentions the desires of the flesh there in verse 16. Some of you have a Bible translation that calls it the lust of the flesh, not just the desire of the flesh, but the lust of the flesh. That's accurate. The New Living Translation calls it the craving for physical pleasure. That puts a lot of life to it, and I think that's also uh, very accurate. The desires of the flesh, these are things that our body wants to engage in that our body wants to experience, that our body wants to feel. You see, our bodies, you know, when you become a Christian, your body is owned by Jesus. It's redeemed by Christ, but it's not yet fully glorified. Right? The day is coming where we're going to inhabit an eternity with Christ in these bodies. They're not going to look like this, but the teaching of the New Testament is that these bodies are like a seed of the eternal body that God is preparing for us. So we're going to inhabit eternity, not in spirit, but in body, physically. One day in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we'll put off this flesh and put on the new flesh, the new creation that God has for us. So here on earth, these bodies, they still know how to sin. Don't look at me like, you're, like I'm shocked. Or like, you're shocked, don't look at me that way. We all know it. These bodies have tasted sin, they like sin, they enjoy sin, they know how to do it. Partly because God made these bodies with the capacity to feel, and that's good. That's part of his created order. But because of the fall of mankind, we now love to use these bodies to feel things that are outside the bounds of what God has designed for us. So we'll take natural desires, like a sexual desire or um, a hunger pain, and we'll turn those desires into immorality or gluttony. And that's what this particular line of temptation does. It appeals to the body. It longs to get us to engage in or experience something outside God's will for our lives. So I want you to think of it like this. Think of the temptation or the desires of the flesh as the temptation to feel something. And while we pass through life, th this is a big temptation. We will want to feel things. Look, listen to me right now. There are gonna be times where through depression, discouragement, disaster, trial, difficulty, pain, hurt, boredom, in your life, Satan is gonna say, hey, I could help you feel something different than what you're feeling right now. The temptation to feel is a big temptation. And there's a million different ways that this plays out, but I'll offer a few suggestions. You know, one, we want to feel things quite often through substances that we consume. It could be through alcohol or marijuana or prescription medication or harder drugs that will turn to a desire for a feeling. Or it could come through overeating or eating in chronically unhealthy ways, consuming in a way that kind of distracts us from the reality of life. We also, I think, want feelings at times and are tempted to give in to wanting the feelings that are connected to passive consumption. I'm sure you've noticed this about the world that we live in these days. If you told Americans 60 years ago how much television, how much screen time human beings 
their descendants would consume, they'd be shocked. But a lot of times we desire this because we want to tune out from what is the experience that is our lives and give in to a feeling that we can get as we passively consume. And there's a place for things like television or social media or video games. They can be blessed distractions from the Lord in their proper place. But too often we become consumed with the feelings of escape that these outlets provide. And of course, I think it'd be wrong for me not to mention how we often want the feelings that are attached to sexual experiences that are outside of what God has designed for humanity. A lot of people will turn to the digital world in an attempt to satisfy sexual urges. You know, screens are just readily available and prevalent and will often replace the honest, hard work of pursuing married sexual love, which requires commitment and transparency and openness. In other words, married sexual enjoyment requires a lot of work for a married couple to enjoy. You have to talk a lot over and over and over and over again. It requires openness and honesty and communication. And a lot of people feel ill-equipped to do all this stuff. And so because they want sexual release, they're tempted to turn to the ease of a screen. Or others will turn to emotional attachment. I want to feel that. I want to feel liked, enjoyed, approved. I want to feel like I'm attractive, desirable to someone else. And it's not just women that will enter into affairs of the heart. Men will follow this temptation as well. And some will turn to the actual act of infidelity or immorality, believing that it will bring them satisfaction. All of these are connected to that big temptation, the desire to feel. I want to feel something. And none of us should sit here on a high horse thinking that we're immune to this because none of us is immune. Life is hard, and the temptation to feel the desires of the flesh, they, they cry out to us, they speak to us, they ask us to take a break from the struggle of life. Maybe even insidiously whispering into our hearts that we deserve to do so. This is pure evil. We should not give in to it, so I want to offer to you an antidote the first antidote I'll hold out to you for this temptation, or the one that I'll hold out for this temptation, is the antidote of integrity. Write that down if you're taking notes. Integrity. I want you to think of the word integer when you think of integrity. An integer is a whole number. It's not a fraction. It's not divided. And a person who has integrity, they're whole. They're not divided. They're not segmented. You know, someone with integrity, they're not perfect, but what you see is what you get. What they say is what's actually happening. A person with integrity has not given in to hypocrisy. They know that they should not claim to be one thing when they're actually another. They're striving for congruency in their lives. I'm sure every person in this room has had an experience of being disappointed by a believer, a Christian, who is a Christian, probably even at the end of the day, loves the Lord, but who allowed some incongruency to come into their lives. They lost their integrity, took over their lives. You see, with integrity, we refuse to believe the lie that we can take on a little water without sinking. They call that the Titanic myth. The myth of the Titanic was we've got all these compartments one can fill up with water, but it won't affect the, the vessel in total. But a believer understands that there is no room for compartmentalizing their lives. A person who's lost their integrity, though, does just that. They say, this is my church segment of life. This is my family segment. This is my friend segment. This is my work segment. And here's how I behave in all these different segments of my life. But no, the believer says, I don't want that segmentation. I want everything that God has for me, and I will be on guard against that segmentation. So are there areas of your life that you keep tucked away or hidden? Is there an unhealthy attitude or practice which is beginning to take root in your heart? Here's what you've got to do. As quickly as you can, get it into the light. 
James said in James 5, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We've just got to to be open with each other. There've got to be people in your life that you can share what's going on in your heart, share what's going on in your life, lest one area of compromise begin to overtake the entirety of who you are. Have you ever seen a, a field that used to be grass that is now just entirely weeds? That didn't happen overnight. It was at one point a nice lawn, but as one weed then multiplied over time, it was overtaken. We have a great example of this actually locally. You could see it from the church patio if you'll look in that direction, or if you're seated on the side today, you can look in that direction and see it. You'll see Mount Toro, but just to the left of it, a little bit lower, is what they call Black Mountain. Black Mountain is called that because it looks black. And the reason it looks black is because it's covered in manzanita. It started at the coast. It trickled its way into Fort Ord. And then eventually it got onto that piece of soil and it overtook that entire mountain. It just got everything. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over years. It was something that began small but began to take over that piece of land. And every time you look at Mount Toro and Black Mountain next to it, I hope that you'll consider what a life of integrity can do for you. Because if we will take care of even the smallest things and not allow them to exist, then our lives can be lived for the Lord. But if we allow compromise to enter in slowly but surely, it will take over our lives. Proverbs 4.23 says it this way, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. If you think that I'm being a little too uptight about this or a little too aggressive about this, look at Proverbs 4.23. The word is vigilance, and that's what I'm proposing to you today. All right, let's go on to the next one. Number two, he calls it the desires of the eyes. That's likely the desire to have what you see. You know, you see something with your eyes, and you want it. The first one was the desire to feel. This one is the desire to have, to have. Okay, in this temptation, it's not hard to imagine how it works. Jesus is on the throne. He's there. We're singing songs about how he's enough for us. You've always been good to me. You've always satisfied me. And then the commercial comes on, or we're driving down the street, and we see the nice house, or whatever it might be, and our hearts begin to want to have that which God has not yet given to us. We say, I see that, and I want that. And sometimes Christ is then asked to give up his supremacy in our lives. And this is all over the place, isn't it? There's a reason why the Bible is filled with admonitions warning us about greed and covetousness. There's a reason why inside of the Ten Commandments we're told not to covet our neighbor's wife, land, possessions, house, children, all of that, because so often we want what is not ours. We want what we cannot have. We think about money and we just think, well, all I want is enough to where I'm totally financially independent and secure, where I can do a lot of fun things, and I can take it a little bit easy. When we think about possessions, we crave bigger and better housing or better features inside of that housing, nicer clothing, the latest technology, or the latest and greatest of whatever hobby we're into at the time. And when we think about experiences that we want to have, we just want Instagram-worthy vacations, nice dinners at the freshest restaurants or the best seats at the best sporting events. These are the things that we desire. And, and as we see them, and that temptation to have comes against our hearts, we might even hear the echoes of Jesus. We might hear him saying things like Luke 12, verse 15, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We might hear the Lord saying that. We might hear the Lord later in that same passage describing the foolish man as the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But even amid scriptural warnings like these, our discontented hearts often get the best of us, don't they? And pretty soon the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, 
They have their way in us. Jesus said in the parable of the soil that they begin to choke out the word in our lives. And soon mortgages and loan payments and maintenance and 80-hour work weeks begin to take up all the space that we could have used for God's kingdom. And certainly some of those things are from the Lord in the proper measure. But when covetousness gets a hold of our hearts, they completely overrun us. The world gets the throne it desires. So here's the antidote I want to propose to you for the desire to have. It's this. It's not going to be a shocker. Generosity. Generosity. If the desire to have is gripping your soul, then give it away. When you tell money where to go or belongings where to go, they lose their power over you. You know, people who are mature in Christ, they know that they can give without loving, but they know they can't love without giving. Giving is attached to love. God is a giver. And generosity helps awaken God's love and God's care for other people. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 21. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's one of my favorite verses because Jesus re-explains life to us. He tells us where you put your treasure, whether it's time, money, finances, possessions, whatever, where you put your treasure, that's where your heart is going to go. So you invest thousands of dollars in your favorite sport team, you're gonna be really invested and curious about how that team is doing. But then you give to someone else, you're gonna be curious, how are they doing? How are they doing? Your heart is going to follow your treasure. Like I said, God is a giver. He gave himself for us. And if you emulate him, you'll discover great reward flows from him. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 4. He said, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And he said that concerning secret generosity. When your father sees your secret generosity, he will reward you. I'm one of those guys, when I read lines like that, I'm like, well, how? (laughs) You know, how will My father who sees in secret will reward me. Well, one way that we should answer that question, and I hope you would answer the question this way because I just taught Philippians chapter four, verse 13, not that long ago. So hopefully you would say one way that God rewards us is through provision. You know, there the Philippian church had been generous with Paul and Paul was able to say, and my God will provide all of your needs according to his riches in glory. In the Matthew 6 passage, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So that's one way. But another way is that generosity will yield victory over the power of money in your life. When you're generous with your fellow man or local church or another ministry, you'll find a release on the grip money has on you. It's a tool for us to use but so often it tools us, and so we've got to give it away so it can continually be used as the vessel that God intends it to be. But it can also, as God will also reward us with victory over the power of possessions. Like I said, we're swimming in commercialism, don't you think? Just try to go a whole day without seeing some kind of advertisement. Good luck. You know, we're constantly being sold. We're constantly being told what we need. But generosity will help give you victory over the desire to have more and more and more. And it will also help you have victory over the constant pull that humanity experiences towards comfort and thinking that comfort will be the thing that satisfies their ultimate desires. You see, when you give your money away, it's a way of saying, God, I don't trust this, I trust you. God likes for us to be a little bit uncomfortable, (laughs) leaning on him, trusting him, on the edge with him. So the list could go on, but the reward of the Father for generosity, it's powerful, it's beautiful. Let's look at the last thing, the third temptation. It's called the pride of life, the pride of life. Other translations call this the pride of one's lifestyle, the boastful pride of life, or pride in our achievements and possessions. Other translations say it like this, pretentious pride, arrogance, inflated self-assurance, empty show. Nobody wants to be any of these things. None of us say like, yeah, you know what I want is to be pretentious, arrogant, 
empty show, inflated and self-assured, you know, in that kind of way. None of us want that. They're all cringeworthy phrases, but we sometimes succumb to this temptation. Listen to me right now. If the first one is the desire to feel and the second one is the desire to have, then this is the, or the desire to, to have, then this is the desire to be. This is the desire to be. To be loved or famous or envied or worshipped or admired or widely respected. This is the desire, whether you're great or not, to be seen as great. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, said it like this. He said, in this fallen world where original sin in the form of pride, ambitious independence, and deep level egocentricity has infected everyone, we all crave to be admired for strength in something. This desire, this temptation, tempts us to project things about ourselves, things which are often untrue, or to highlight our best features so others will see us as successful or strong or independent people. And make no mistake, this temptation can thrive inside of a local church, inside of a local congregation, because we will often be tempted to be known as spiritual or spiritually mature or victorious over sin. So put this way, the pride of life can totally kill your life group discussion. Where everybody in the circle is projecting, I got it all together. And a lot of this is for show. It's a mask to cover up a sense of inferiority that we're walking around with. When I was a little boy, I liked to read the Peanuts comic strip. I love the Peanuts gang by Charles Schultz. There's one where Lucy sees that Charlie Brown is worried, and so she asks him what he's worried about, and Charlie Brown says, I feel inferior, which is not a surprise if you know the Peanuts gang. Charlie had a poor self-image. He said, I feel inferior, and Lucy said, oh, you shouldn't worry about that. Lots of people have that feeling, and he said, what, that they're inferior? And she replied, no, that you're inferior. <laughs> and that's how we feel, you know, that, oh yeah, everybody's thinking that about us. And so we mask it with the pride of life. And I think a lot of times men particularly struggle with the pride of life. We have a hard time showing that we have need. We're competitive a lot of times by nature. And so we compare ourselves, our salaries or our homes or our spiritual service. But this competitive spirit can keep us from honesty about where our lives are really at. The pride of life, like all of these temptations, can totally blind you. So what is an, an antidote for the pride of life? Here's one that I'll suggest to you. Humility. Humility. Now, when I say the word humility, unfortunately, some people in the church have had the idea that this is a woe is me, I'm so worthless, I'm the scum of the earth kind of attitude about the self. But I'm not talking about a faux humility, I'm talking about real humility. So I want to help you understand humility by giving you three words that I think might color it for you. The first word is the Latin word humus, H-U-M-U-S. It's where we get our English word humility from. And humus means from the earth or from the ground. And it's a great word to help you in developing humility because, brothers and sisters, that's exactly where we're from. There's a creator God who on the sixth day of creation took the raw material of the earth and fashioned man fashioned humanity from the dirt of the earth. And when we die and our bodies decompose, they go back into the earth where they await the last trumpet and the, the uh, resurrection of our bodies, those of us who are in Christ, from the grave. So this should help you understand where you came from. Andrew Murray, in a, in a book called Simply Humility, said this, humility is simply acknowledging the truth of our position as creatures and yielding to God his place. Just remember where you came from. You're from the dust of the earth. You're part of God's created order. You're not God. He gets the glory. 
But a second word I want you to consider is the word honesty. Honesty. You see, humility, it really doesn't require some crazy twisting of the truth. Maybe you've had some moment in your life where like through scripture, through Bible teaching, through personal failure, through all these different things that you've gone through in life, you came to this big moment of revelation where you realized, I'm not all that, and it's not all about me, and I'm, I'm not as awesome as I thought I was. But if on like the first day of that whole journey that you were going on, you went to one of your friends and you said, I think I'm really not all that, your friend would look at you, especially if it's a guy on guy kind of conversation, and they would say to you, I've known that about you from the first day I met you. It's just, you're not a big deal, I'm not a big deal. If we're just honest about who we are, I think it will help us with humility. And so often we're so busy projecting our success, you can't help anybody that way. You gotta share your failures. I know in my home, you know, my... My, my daughters, they love hearing the honesty, uh, the honest truth of failures in my life. They could listen to me tell those stories over and over and over again. Dad, tell us that embarrassing thing you did one more time, you know? Like, we just love that, you know? And it, that honest look, it's so good. But be honest about your life, including your successes. You know, I think about my life, and I know that every good Thing in my life has been a gift from God. The salvation that I have, the wife that I have, the children that I have, the church that I get to pastor, which I think is just awesome, the stuff that God is doing here, the things that I know about God and his word, the gifts that I have, the building our church gets to worship in the land that we own, all of it, every single ounce of it. And I'm not just saying this. I can, I can just think through how all of them were given to me, many of them given directly by God, salvation, giftedness, but so many of them given by God through other people. I mean, I'm standing here with my Bible teaching this message to you. You think I came up with this stuff by myself? I'm standing on the shoulders of so many incredible teachers and scholars and thinkers that their words are like a gift to me. I mean, some of them I had to buy their books, but still a gift. It's all received. And I bet if you took an honest look at your life, you'd understand the same thing. It's a gift. And then the third word to help you cultivate humility also comes from the Latin word humus. It's the word humor. <laughs> Think of it like this. Stop taking yourself so seriously. Laugh at yourself sometimes. You're not that impressive, so just laugh at yourself a little bit. All right? I've read this in an old devotional. It says, the truth is this. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. The, the reality is the pride of life is building a pedestal and trying to get you to stand on it, but you can't handle that. When tragedy strikes or failure strikes, you will be decimated if you give in to the pride of life. So just operate by humility. It'll help you navigate real life better than if you give in to the pride of life. All right, I, I wanna close by bringing your mind to two people, Eve and Moses. Eve gave in to all these temptations. In Genesis 3, she saw that the tree was good for food. That's the temptation to feel. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the temptation to have the fruit. And that it was to be desired to make one wise. That's the desire to be something. She could become wise like God. But Moses, he succeeded against these temptations. You know, it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that he chose mistreatment with God's people over the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's the temptation to feel. He could have just hung out in Egypt and just sinned to his heart's delight. But he denied himself. He embraced the reproach of Christ rather than, it says, the treasures of Egypt. He could have been a very wealthy man as the, the grandson of Pharaoh. 
But he denied all of that to suffer with Jesus' people. And he would not allow himself the privilege of being called, it says, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Talk about the temptation to be. He might have even been in line for Pharaoh's throne. Could have been that. But instead, he denied all those things. And the reason I'm holding out those two people to you is because Eve's decisions impacted everyone in her family, including every one of us sitting here today. Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit of the garden of the tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered into the world. It affected all of us. Moses' decisions did a similar thing. It in fact impacted not just his life, but the lives of all of the people of Israel, all 12 tribes, as they were then set free through Moses' leadership. The reason I'm trying to say that to you today is because so many people think that when they're battling temptation, it will only impact them if they're successful and will only impact them if they succumb. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. It will impact so many other people in your world and life, whether you stand or whether you give in. And I wanted you to have that vision in your heart. All right, last question. I told you this one would be very quick. What is our motivation for resisting the world? Look at verse 17. He says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I'm just gonna say it briefly like this. You know, Why would I want to take a stand against the world? Why would I want to be strong against these temptations? Why not just give in? You know, why not just give in? Well, there's a lot of reasons biblically, but here's the reason that John uses here. To, to give in to worldliness is the worst practice for heaven that you could possibly enter into. It will not exist there. The way of the world will not exist there. It's gonna be pure, holy, loving, generous, giving, contented, worshipful, pure. It's gonna be all of those things. So to behave with the love of the Father today is like, it's not just practice for heaven, it's like you're living Jesus' kingdom right now. It's not that John is saying someday the kingdom will begin. He's saying it's already begun, so just live it out right now. All right, so I, I hope that by looking at this little passage, you're feeling like, yeah, okay, I want to take a stand against these things. So let me give you some applications. Number one, let key people observe your life. Not everybody can get into the, the warp and the woof to borrow a little phrase from Leviticus, anybody? Uh, not everybody can observe all these little details of your life, but there should be a handful of people who can. They can observe your life. They, they can see into what's going on in your life, and you've opened yourself up to them. Number two, consider your weekly, monthly, and annual rhythms of life, and think of when each temptation might have its strongest pull. Let me give you an example. Think about your life. Maybe for you, Christmas time comes around. Maybe you're married, you have kids in the house. Maybe you have friends who spend thousands and thousands of dollars spoiling their children at Christmas time, and you are tempted by that. Just think about that. Every year, you know it's going to come around, so steal yourself against that temptation when it comes. Maybe you've got a friend who's got like a really nice house, and you know what it does to you when you go over there to visit, and they invite you over. You need to pray ahead of time. Lord, help me not to covet, help me not to go there, help me just be happy for them and enjoy what God, what you've given to them. So think about those rhythms of your life. Um, I know for me, like on a weekly thing, uh, the Monday is my least favorite day of the week, <laughs> you know? I feel so tired and just worn out and all of that, and that I know that the temptation to feel will be present on that day. So I want to be prayed up. I want to be ready so that I don't give in. Number three, find people to be honest with about your temptations. Find people to be honest with about your temptations. This is similar to letting key people observe your life, but this is you sharing about the details of, hey, here are some of my triggers. Here are some of the things that I lean towards. Number four, 
pinpoint feel-based temptations that you struggle with that you've allowed into your life? What are some of those feel kind of temptations? Like, I want to feel this that you sometimes let into your life. You know, pinpoint those. Number five, start a generosity fund. Start a generosity fund. If you don't know what this is, then you need to come to the financial peace class. It starts tomorrow night. You can sign up for it at calvary.com. But a generosity fund is basically a way of saying, you know, in addition to giving, being generous with the church or missions or whatever, uh, and, you know, tithing, I want to have a little money set to the side so that when the Spirit prompts me to be generous towards somebody, I actually have something there that's stored up and I can, can do that kind of thing. Just a suggestion. Number six, and I don't want you to use your generosity fund on me, so don't, that's not why I'm saying it. Figure out other people to use it for. Number six, have an honest conversation about what you'd most like people to think about you. Just think about this. What do you want to be known as? Hardworking? Intelligent? Successful? What do you want to be known as? Then that'll help you discover what, temp, what the temptation to be might look like in your life in particular, and some of the things that you might be tempted to do as a response. All right, number seven, and I'll invite the worship team to come on up right now, and we'll take communion together. But number seven, spend some time mapping out the hundreds of people who could be influenced by your life. This is why you do this. You just draw your name on a piece of paper and put a circle around your name, and then draw the people that you're closest with and put, put their names all around you with circles around their names, and then draw little lines going from you to them. Then draw people going from them that are around them, and just mind map or lay out there the hundreds, I think, of people who are impacted by your obedience or your disobedience, because I think it'll help you to take a stand to know the cost and, and, and the price that is paid through, by giving into or standing in the face of temptation. And I'm so proud of so many in our church who though battling temptation, we're wanting to fight the good fight together. And one of the weapons the Lord has given to us is communion. And we take it each month on Sundays together and we're gonna take it right now. It's a way for us to remember, oh, we were great sinners, but Jesus is a great savior, amen? And he cleanses us and washes us week in, week out, whether we fail or not, he is good. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.